0: Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Practice Brave podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Stacey Sims, and we are going to be talking about the menstrual cycle, training during your period, training during perimenopause, and just how hormones can influence our fitness throughout the span of our lifetime. So Stacey, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, would you <laughs> mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? I want people to know who you are and the work you're doing.
1: Oh gosh, I uh, don't really know how to begin with that, but um, I've condensed it too. I am a female athlete performance physiologist, and that is in the shortest way possible of saying that I've spent my academic and athletic career looking at sex differences between training and nutrition and recovery, and finding that most of the data and studies have been done on men, and it's not applicable to women, and it's not just in sport nutrition and sport science, it's pretty much all biomedical stuff. And so my mantra has been women are not small men, trying to get people to understand that physiologically we're different. We have sex differences from birth that influence the way that we fuel our exercise. And then we have the onset of puberty. We have this huge dichotic switch between boys and girls. And we have our menstrual cycle and how our menstrual cycle hormones affect our training, our recovery, our fueling. We would get into perimenopause, menopause. So we have all these different stages in life where most of the time we've been told, no, it's just a linear progression. Um, age is a linear model, and that's all based on male data. So that's a long way of saying what a female athlete performance
0: just, <laughs> just is. Right. Well, I, I love the sentiment of women are not small men. I know that's what you did your TEDx talk on. And it's an excellent, I think, overview of just, hey, we need to look so far beyond what we've been told and comparing our female athletes to men and making suggestions for their training or their nutrition or their lifestyle in the same capacity we have traditionally, right? Exactly. Yep. And I mean, like right down to
1: basic training protocols and coaching protocols, all based on male data. Right. So all like the coaching platform is slowly starting to catch up, but the implementation isn't there. Protocols haven't been changed. So, you know, I don't think that women's
0: performance potential has been met. Right. We still have a long way to go, Oh, absolutely. which is exciting. Right. It is yeah. exciting. And I appreciate the work that you're doing and how hard you've been working for a long time to get better information out there for female athletes. I kind of came into this still, I guess, not that late into the game. Cause like you said, there's still so much more we need to do, but just seeing the huge disconnect there was for supporting pregnant and postpartum athletes eight yes. years ago, when I had my son, I was like, wow, there's just really generic or really extreme recommendations. And there's a whole lot in the middle of acknowledging the psychology where it meets the physiology and how that influences core and pelvic health. And now it's opened my eyes to Oh man, like what could we have done differently coaching 13, 14 and 15 year olds? Why was that not taught in any of our undergrad or graduate work? Exactly. And, okay, cool. Pregnancy and postpartum. But like, then what now there's yeah. this whole season that maybe is on the horizon for a lot of us pregnant and postpartum athletes of perimenopause. And when does that start? And what does that start to look like? How does our training and bodies change during that season? Oh God, and then menopause. And then wait, what if I want to keep lifting or doing CrossFit or triathlons when I'm 60, 70, whatever? There's a whole spectrum that we, it seems like there's just not as much information as we should have in 2021. True. And the
1: small amount of information that we have impacts people in a huge way. And so the word is being spread, which is to our benefit with empowering across the lifespan, but um, there's still a lot of pushback, like as much pushback as I've gotten about menstrual cycle and periods that's starting to become normalized. But as soon as you say perimenopause or menopause, people are like, Oh, no, we can't talk about that. Yeah. Don't why acknowledge I that that. Is? Oh, it comes from. Yeah. No, it's more like the history of women, right? The marginalization wow. we've had across all of society where it starts with women are delicate petals and they can't do anything on their periods and they should be hiding. And then you don't talk about the change. And I hate that expression because I'm like, we're the same people. Like we're not changing into werewolves or anything like that. We're just having a physiological alteration. And when you see about like sitcoms are notorious for this, where they'll have the perfect sized woman dressed in really tight clothes next to a, like An overweight guy in a flannel shirt that's untucked, right? And you'll see like that guy might age, but the girl age doesn't change, right? Because when you get to a certain point, evidently people don't want to see women aging. So it's just perpetuating that taboo that if you start talking about perimenopause, oh, that means you're aging and we can't have aging women in society,
0: right?
1: um, which is totally Western society driven. Because you look at other cultures, and they're like, "Sweet, new chapter of my life. This is great." So, yeah, it's it's a culture of our society really that's just made it so
0: taboo. Absolutely, and I know that you have had pushback in the medical community too with some of the work that you've done. So, what is what has that been like for you as somebody who's like you've worked your ass off to pave the way in so many different avenues of of supporting female athletes? I know you wrote Roar. Mm -hmm. And obviously that was probably a huge push into getting better information out there. What has it been like in the medical community? We talk, I guess like when I look at it, like we have doctors who tell pregnant women, like don't lift or don't lift over 20 pounds or do what you've always done. So what has that experience been like for you in the medical community with the work you're doing?
1: Um, Well, even now in 2021, uh, some of my PhD students are doing menstrual cycle based research and in they're doing clinical work and they're getting the pushback of why do you want to study women? Why do you want to put the menstrual cycle in? It's going to complicate your PhD. You should just do men and get it over with. It's mm-hmm. like, wait a second, because we want new information. So, like, getting it through them. But, like, through my career, um, because I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD and I'd be in the school of medicine. And they're like, you're not a real scientist. You're not a real doctor. So it's just the pushback on the degrees, but also being translational. Like if you're not bench science, then they're like, well, that's not real science. So it's always been the, well, you're looking at, male cells and you're trying to disseminate what's going to happen in a vaccine from a male cell well that will work for men but not for women so it's always been this push and always getting the what are you talking about a body is a body physiology is physiology but then when we get into like perimenopause and start talking about the types of training you're supposed to be doing and lifting heavy it was like no there's too much cortisol it's like actually no if you're doing that moderate intensity stuff that's when you start getting problems but if you're polarizing and looking at how your body responds to that, then that's what we want to do. And so the more that we show the research and the more we get it out there, it's coming really from the patient going to the doctor and schooling the doctor on what's going on. Because the medical society, they get a whole bunch of information and they know just a little bit about a whole bunch of things, but they aren't in depth. And so if you can be educated and can talk to your physician about it, then then it's a good relationship. But then a lot of physicians are like, you don't know anything. You're
0: Dr. Google. So yeah, I know it's so tricky and it's hard to find practitioners in all different areas that really want to learn and support and, you know, be willing to open their mind to the whole exercise physiology component of um, supporting their patients. Right. So let's, I guess, dive into some more specifics around training with our menstrual cycle. I think most people maybe around my age were basically told like, just kind of keep doing whatever you're doing with your cycle. And it was like, no big deal. I can literally remember when I first got my period, it was like, well, figure out how to put a tampon and it's time to go to swim practice. And yeah. <laughs> like, and that, that was quite literally it. And my mom, had really great intentions. Like she just, it was just like, well, yeah, you have your period now. Like let's go to swim practice. And it just was the most awkward thing. And I feel like that just, there was no real education around exercise and your practice and competing and then eventually strength training and like really dialing in for performance as a college athlete or beyond different events and races. There was zero talk or education around our cycle and how that influenced our training zero right exactly until you don't get a period right. and you're amenorrheic, and
1: they're like sweet you're training hard enough great mm-hmm. like i've heard that so many times which is completely the opposite right so we unpack it a little bit there is a lack of education Totally. like even now we talk about getting the period but we don't talk about the nuts and bolts of what that looks like what is normal what's a normal bleed what's heavy menstrual bleeding right because it's like one third of female athletes have heavy menstrual bleeding. They think that that's normal because that's their own lived experience. Right. So they're in bed with, with really severe cramping. They can't do much, but there's help for that. And right. when we talk about, oh, you can get help for that and get your life back, then people are like, what? Really? Why didn't we talk about this earlier?
0: Right.
1: And Then when we talk about like your period itself in the menstrual cycle, and we start to understand that your period is an ergogenic aid, meaning that if you get your period and it's a regular cycle, then that means that your endocrine health is great. Your body's able to withstand stress, adapt to stress, be resilient to it. And then we can look at how those hormones fluctuate to be able to know when we dial in speed and power, when we pull it back a little bit, when we work more on technique. So it's a different approach to periodization, no pun Ah. intended, right? Yes. So great, yeah. And when you take away the male lens of undulating periodization or you know block training and really take the female lens and say, well, here's the menstrual cycle. And I know the days where I am bulletproof and I know the days where I'm flat and it's a repetitive pattern across my menstrual cycle. Then you can dial in the days you want to do hard training in the days. Well, maybe I just do some active recovery. Yeah. And in the general scope, we know that the low hormone phase with day one being the first day of bleeding up to around ovulation, which is around day 13, this is when you can recover well. You can access carbohydrate. This is a time to push it hard, do your high intensity, do your PRs and your lifting. But it's contrary to what everyone hears when, oh, you're on your period. You should take it really easy, right? Which is not true because from a physiological standpoint, we, our bodies are, are primed to go hard. It's that psychological thing that we need to dispel. When we tell a woman you can't do something, then that's going to plant a seed in the back of their head. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this.
0: Right. Like, oh, I'm on my period. I should probably take it easy kind of thing. But you're saying it's the contrary. When you're on your period, that's kind of the time where you can go full send leading into ovulation. Right, because the hormones have dropped. I mean, that's a whole
1: aspect. As your hormones start to drop, you have an inflammatory response, which causes the contraction in the bleed. So your hormones are low. And when our estrogen and progesterone are low, then we're, quote, more like men, where our physiology responds very similarly to what we know as training and training adaptations. And then around ovulation, as estrogen starts to come up, estrogen itself is anabolic. So we have a period of time around ovulation where we can have some really hard training sessions and recover from it really well. Then after ovulation, when progesterone starts to come up, estrogen is coming up and they antagonize each other. This is where we go early luteal phase. We're more steady state and maybe some tempo work. Um, And then when we get to maybe five or six days before your period starts, this is where you want to look at deloading more technique work, more mobility, functional then there are a few women who feel bulletproof like two days before their period starts because the hormones have dropped. And they're like, wait, I'm supposed to be doing technique? It's like, well, not if you feel bulletproof, because then that's your natural rhythm, then hit it hard before your period starts. Yeah. So there's lots of yeah. things about tracking your menstrual cycle to kind of match up what we know from science, but also your own lived experience.
0: Right. And that's the hard part. I think really learning to listen to your body is such an art. And we have been fed so many opinions and voices that it's like, once again, kind of combining our natural physiology with, well, how does that actually work for my body and my goals and needs and, um, and training experiences? That's really hard to figure out. Right. And that's why I'm happy with all the femtech that's come
1: out that makes yeah. it so much easier to track. And you're just putting in a little bit of information. And then if you're using something like wild AI that uses artificial intelligence to learn your data and be able to feed it back to you, then you're like, oh, I see my patterning. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So it, it takes some of that guesswork and opinions out of it because it's telling you what your own body can do.
0: Yeah. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Like I only use an app and, I, and it's really, really basic app just to have an idea of like, okay, I feel like I am ovulating. I know the signs. Yes. But, and then also recognizing why like I'm in such a funk where like I don't feel yeah. creative. I just want to be off social media. I'm like, Bleh. and then other days I'm like energy. I have all these creative ideas for posts or I want to go run or I want to do this. Tell us more about that technology, because for me, just tracking using the app has been really insightful for knowing that it's not forever. It's just like right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there have been a,
1: quite a few apps that have come up. You have like Hello Clue, you have mm-hmm. Flow, you have Fitter Woman, and they're all 2D. So they're assuming that your cycle follows a, a general pattern that everyone steps. and you can put in. When your period starts and it'll dictate well how long your phases are, and it gives you some good information. And there's nothing bad about that at all. It gives you really good insightful information. But then there's some new FemTech that's using artificial intelligence. So when you're saying day one, you list your symptomology, if you go over three cycles, then it's gonna be able to say, hey, your strain is gonna be really low on this day. This is the time where you can pick it up and do hard, hard work and recover well. And it also integrates things like the aura Ring or the Whoop Bands. So you can get your sleep metrics that also impact strain and recovery. So it's all those data bits that are out there that can all be put into one platform. So you're getting more than just you going, I'm on day one, check my symptomology and look forward. It's I'm on day one. This is how I feel. And then maybe you forget a few days. You go back in day five and say, I feel fantastic. Had great sleep then it learns. And so over the course of three or four cycles, the more data that you put into it, the more it learns your own cycle and habits. Um, So it can pick up a red flag. So if you're overtraining or too much strain, it'll say, hey, wait a second, you might need some recovery, because the goal of these apps are to not only inform women of their own cycle and how they're they're reacting, or what days are good or bad, but also really at the eye to prevent like low energy
0: availability or overtraining syndrome, where you start to have that misstep between training and recovery. Right, right. Which I, I find so interesting, and I know that this is probably so exciting for people like you who have been researching and really trying to push stuff like this forward so many years. And then I know there's a lot of people listening that are like, I just, I just want to make sure that. I have a healthy menstrual cycle, Mm. Maybe it's changed after having a baby. So what are some signs and symptoms that like you have a healthy menstrual cycle, and maybe it's not as healthy, or maybe there's like some greater hormonal considerations at play? Yeah, so when
1: we talk about that, we talk about like a normal cycle is 28 to 40 days. So we know that. And so if you're tracking and you have your training and your mood, whatever, give me a piece of paper on calendar, Could be um, like on your Google Calendar, you have a little note to yourself. It doesn't have to be massively difficult using an app. But then you'll start to see patternings too. And so if you go, okay, well, last month my cycle was 32 days and this month it was 21, what happened? right? Right? There's something, there's a misstep, right? This is more than just an ovulation that's happening there, especially if it happens two cycles in a row. That's why we like to look at what happens over the course of three cycles. Because then we know that every woman has an anovulatory, maybe three, up to three or four ovulatory cycles a year. It's just part of it. It's just part of how your body responds. But you'll see that in that fluctuation of 25 to 40 days. Okay. And the length that changes is the follicular phase. So if you have a longer cycle, your body's still... Like overcoming stress, being really resilient, going, is it good to ovulate or not? Oh, yeah, sweet, good to ovulate. Boom. Okay. But if you have a short cycle and it's perpetually short, this is where we go, well, maybe it's a luteal phase deficiency where you're not producing progesterone. And then that's something you need to check out.
0: What would be considered so short?
1: 21 or less days.
0: Okay.
1: And if you have one 21 day cycle, not a big deal. But if you have successive 21 day cycles or you have a 21 and then you're back to the 35 and then you're back to 21 and there's significant differences,
0: that's when you need to get things checked out. OK, Well, that's really helpful to know. And now I've had a couple of people reach out to me and say, and this has actually happened to me, too, during higher stress times where mm-hmm. instead of ovulating, I would have a period. So it'd be like I'd have a period, then like normal and then. Boom, period again. I'm like, what the heck? I should be ovulating. Why did I just have a period? And I feel like this happens to a lot of different female athletes or maybe more postpartum. What's your experience or take on that?
1: I don't know how to start this, but I will anyway. When I'm working with a bunch of teams, I can look at their menstrual cycle data and I can say, you guys were traveling at this point during the calendar and you were home at this point and you had a massive game at this point without even looking at their team calendar because I can see the nuances that are happening in their cycle lengths. When you're under a lot of stress, it shortens because it's a combination of what your immune system can handle. It can be a combination of an ovulation because your immune system is really primed for virus, bacteria, and stress in the low hormone phase. And if you're under a high amount of stress, your body wants to hold that immune response. So you'll have that surge of estrogen, but you might not necessarily release the egg. Estrogen is like the fertilizer. So you will start to build some endometrial lining, but without progesterone, boom, it drops off. So that high stress, your body's like, hey, I need to get back to that immune response is going to be able to be more protective because after ovulation, you have more pro-inflammatory cytokines that come up, more fever responses, which is not ideal if you're trying to survive. So under times of high stress, you'll have shortened cycles or you'll have your period and then you're like, okay, sweet, I have another few weeks and then boom, it comes again. And it has to do with the fact that anovulation and the effect of estrogen. Um, and we know that, and it's normal, it's normal. And we see, um, like I was saying, like my athletes that have been traveling a lot and they're like, Hey, my cycle's really, really short. Again, if it happens over the course of three or four months and it's continuously short, then we'll get a 21 day progesterone test to see, do you have progesterone or not? What's going on? But stress has a, a huge amount to play into our endocrine system, how our body like responds Because it all comes down to are are our bodies viable to reproduce
0: under times of high stress or low nourishment or not. So we start to see all these irregularities. That's so interesting. And one thing I love that you say is, you know, you're helping female athletes get their physiology to work with them and not against them. I think that's so much of what we talked about so far. But now as we connect that into their lifetime and actually, okay, we have this information. Now how can we What can we do to have our bodies work with us then? What are some of those tools that we can use? Like I said, we start with tracking and we can um, alter
1: our training loads and our stress loads, even making decisions because CEOs and stuff will go in and they know if they've been tracking their cycle, when they're most resilient to stress, always low hormone, right? And with an estrogen surge, you have more cognition, reaction, more motivation. So they can make big decisions. So, if you're looking at that across your life, right, and you're saying, well, how can I work not just from a sporting standpoint, but just to execute decisions and managing life with kids and work and right. that kind of stuff? First thing is track your cycle. Once you know that what's happening and you know low hormone means high stress resilience can hit it hard in, in all aspects of life. After ovulation, it's more of a, of a tempered like, OK, I need to make some decisions, but it's a pause. Same with training. It's a little bit of a pause. It's not that ultimate high intensity. It's just a little bit of a pause, more steady state. And then if you're looking at right before your period starts, that's not the time to go and make rash rash decisions because everything's a little bit off kilter from changes in your neurotransmitters, changes in fueling, changes in immune system. So it's like, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath and pause and I'll come back to you in four or five days.
0: And when I can you know, really make that sound decision under high stress. Right. I love that you mentioned that this goes so, so far beyond exercise and training that this influences our parenthood or, or work and business because that's so true. I think about like, when am I planning my launch and where will I be at in my cycle? Cause I can't be in my funk when I need right. to be like on social media because that's when I just want to go hide under a blanket for a few days when I'm feeling like that. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, being exactly. able to bring some awareness to my own mood and my own just like, Yeah, that creativity, not just in the gym, but just being able to show up and be a human some days can be so sensitive. And I never paid attention to that ever, ever, ever before until maybe a couple of years ago, honestly, where I was like, okay, I'm starting to connect a lot of these dots here. Yeah.
1: And the thing about it is I find women often blame themselves, right? Because we hear all the buzz around, oh, that time of the month, Mm -hmm. oh, you should be cranky and irritable. And people are like, wait, what? now? And so they might try to do something and they're like, what is wrong with me? I didn't get enough sleep. I didn't eat well. I didn't recover well. What's going on? But when you learn what's happening from menstrual cycle phase, you're like, sweet, I know that on day 23 and 24, I'm in a funk and I'm just going to accept it. And it's not me. It's my physiology.
0: Right. So and there's much yeah, grace there. I love that. Um, I think that that's really helpful for a lot of women to hear. It's empowering. It that's is. what we're out. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so what are some nutrition considerations that can help support a healthy menstrual cycle? And as we're moving into perimenopause and, and those kinds of hormonal changes, what are some nutrition considerations that we can implement?
1: So the Biggest thing across the board is more nutrient timing or timing your food around high periods of stress, especially training stress. We hear all the things about ketogenic, intermittent fasting, fasted training. It's all male data. Now, for women, we need to have carbohydrates coming in. We need to be able to fuel for what we're doing, and we need to recover from that. Otherwise, we stay in this catabolic state, this breakdown state. And if we're in a breakdown state, it signals to areas in the brain, specifically in the hypothalamus, that we're under a significant amount of stress and we need to downregulate things so that we can conserve fat, so we can conserve energy, because we don't know when we're going to get the nutrition to fight this stress again, but we know we're under a high amount of stress. So this is where we start to have people are like, I don't understand what's going on. I'm getting fat, slow, sluggish, tired. And my partner, who's a male, is just leaning up and going... Bonkers on this diet It's like because our physiology is different. Right. So, the biggest rock that people can pay attention to is making sure that they're fueling properly for their training sessions, they're recovering from them, and it doesn't even have to be a massive fuel depleting one. But don't go into the gym without having something to eat before, because you're not going to be able to get the signaling to build lean mass. You're just kind of going there for naught, and you need to recover. And it's not massive, like protein recovery shake, it could be your next meal, but it's the timing. We also know that it's not about the total amount of calories you eat in a day. It's the timing of it. Because if you book in your calories on either end of the day, and you have this huge hole in the middle of the day of no food coming in, your body's perceiving it as high stress breakdown state. And you'll still get those signalings for downturning, metabolism, thyroid, all those kinds of things. Right. So
0: doesn't matter. Cross the board. That's the
1: first thing that people should be focusing on.
0: All right. So kind of carb focused prior to training. So what would be some good pre-training meals for a female athlete? Like these really broad questions I'm throwing at you. <laughs> I love them.
1: Yeah. Well, it depends on the time of day, right? Like right. I'm a person who has to get up super early does right. training so I can start the day. take my kid to school, that kind of stuff. So it's like I'll start the morning, and I'm infamously known for uh, protein fortified coffee. So I use almond milk, maple syrup, protein, scoop of protein powder, and double shot of espresso. Make it the night before, put it in the fridge, have before I go. So I have a little bit of carbohydrate, protein before I go. And then I come home and have breakfast. So it doesn't have to be a lot. And if you're not into protein fortified coffees, it could be half a banana. Or a full banana, a piece of toast. It could be some strawberries.
0: Could be Basically nut butter. Eat something when you freaking wake up is what. Yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, and
1: not not a lot, right? It right. doesn't have to be a lot. Maybe a 100, right. 150 calories. Okay. Uh, to bring your blood sugar up, signal to your body, hey, we have some food coming in. We can right. handle this next bit of stress. Right. And then when you get home, it's within thirty to forty-five minutes that you have
0: your protein-oriented meal or recovery shake or whatever you want to do. Right. I think for so many moms, it's just like, get up and go, 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 go. And you're just trying to get everyone out the door into the things that they're going to do. And then by the time you get home, it's like nine or whatever. And you're like, okay, now Now I need something. And like, you've already been up since six and just in that maybe you've had coffee and, you know, a bunch of cream or whatever. And so like, so doing that is kind of setting ourselves up less ideally correct exactly exactly yeah it's always what can you put in the fridge
1: the night before that you can grab while you're going and right. i learned that when i was breastfeeding my my daughter
0: mm-hmm. so
1: it's like you know, early early morning feed and you're like Ugh, i'm kind of hungry and i need to wake up but right. I, I can't put her down so right. it's like okay prepare
0: yeah. the night before so you're drinking something like yeah while you're feeding your baby right and then it would be if you have something early on, and then maybe you would come home, and then you would have some eggs or egg whites with some veggies in there, and then that's your protein where you're getting fueled up in that capacity. Exactly, something you'd recommend. Yep, yep. So I think like having these tangible examples helps people kind of plug in whatever food it is that you know they maybe are drawn to, but just these overarching themes of like, hey, wake up and eat something. That's going to help you. That's not going to make you fatter. That's not no. extra calories, right? Like, Because I think there's such a fear around consuming calories, especially yeah. carbs. But you're yeah. saying that, th- that not consuming calories and not consuming carbs is actually going to be the problem. Right. And the thing about it is the one really important bit of research that has
1: come out that isn't being pushed in the popular media is mm-hmm. that if you do fasted training or you go and do anything... That brings your metabolism up without food. It actually blunts your body's response to burn fat. So, women who are like, "Oh, I want to lose weight," and they're not fueling for it, or they're delaying food intake, it's
0: counterproductive. Mm. Super counterproductive. That goes against so much marketing we see in the fitness industry.
1: (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm bad to that because
0: marketing is stronger than science, unfortunately. I know, but it's true. Well, I'm, that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation and I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing so that we can keep dispelling myths that exist in our mutual communities um, and beyond so that better information keeps getting out there because women are making themselves crazy. And we've been raised in a culture too, even by well-meaning parents where it's like just diet dogma has dictated so much of our choices and that's so brutal. I know. It's awful.
1: And it starts early too. It's yeah. Body awareness starts early. We see like five-year-olds who are talking about, Oh, so-and-so is fat. I need to go on a diet. It's like, wait, wait, wait a second. Where did you
0: get that? Oh, I know it's insane. And so let's talk a little bit about protein then we talked about getting some carbs in to help fuel some workouts when it comes to recovering from a workout timing protein. Is that something you would recommend? Yeah. Yeah. And It's not just timing
1: protein post-exercise, it's every meal. We want every meal to have 20 to 30 grams minimum. So we know that there's a study that a friend just sent to me a few days ago looking at those who were eating isocalories, so enough calories, Mm -hmm. calorie deficit and calorie surplus. And those in those groups who had adequate protein at 20 to 40 gram dose at every meal still lost body fat maintain lean mass, regardless if they were in a surplus or deficit. So protein's super important, super, super important across the day, especially post-exercise because for women, like I said, we have a different metabolism than men during exercise. So we clear blood sugar quickly. We don't rely that much on liver and muscle glycogen like men do. So we burn more fat and we burn through more lysine amino acids. So we need to put it back afterwards. A little bit of carbohydrate, but that protein's super important for getting that muscle protein synthesis going, for neurotransmitters in the brain to reduce that breakdown state, and we have such a society that is either carb fearful or over carb zealous. Right. It's like carb, 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 carb. Recover with carbohydrate, but we need to focus on that protein,
0: right? Yeah, there's so many times where I tell people that I've I've coached, like, if you do nothing else, I just want you to try to get a little bit more protein with every meal. And let's see what happens in a month. Yeah, like, that's, all. that's all I want you to do. Like, I don't want yep. you to track your calories or anything like that right now. I just want to know that like, okay, you're eating, you have this much ish protein at this meal and this much and we're adding a little bit more cautiously, consistently. Let's read yeah. in this in a month and see where you're at. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You know, it's like such a simple thing, but that doesn't always make it easy, right? No. And women are, have
1: habitually been afraid of protein. Right. Even the recommendations are wrong for women when they're saying, oh, women should have maybe a half of what men should have. And when you look at the guidelines, the guidelines for athletic women is just a smaller amount of what's recommended for sedentary men. So when you start actually doing the research and seeing nitrogen balance and what women need, they need the same amount as active men. And we've just been pushed so far down the track of low fat, forget about the carbs, or now we're like high fat, low protein, protein causes all these issues, but doesn't, doesn't. Right.
0: Right. That's so interesting. So now when does perimenopause start? Like I feel like so many we, I was just having this conversation with my girlfriend and it's like, man, we like just have these babies, and then we're like, all right, we're postpartum, maybe we're recovering from that, we're kind of getting back into our groove again and then boom, perimenopause is on the horizon and you're like, "Oh. Yeah. Oh, cool. What is that?" Like, I mean, <laughs> what? And we start hearing about this where like I know my mom's generation was like, I don't know what perimenopause is. We just like had menopause and that was just that and you move on with your life. And I'm like, "Oh, yeah. like okay." But now we kind of know that it's like this thing on the horizon and what changes and what can we do now to, I guess, be proactive as we enter yet another season where our bodies and lifestyles change because we haven't been through enough with motherhood, you know?
1: Right. I know. Just getting over the (laughs) sleep deprivation and now you're like, am I still sleep deprived or is it a symptom of perimenopause?
0: Or what is that? Yeah. So can you talk to us about that? Because again, I feel like it's this subject that like, You hear so many extremes around, and it's really hard to know, like, how does that actually relate to people like me? Right. So
1: perimenopause is pretty much a decade before you actually hit menopause. So we start to see it in our mid-40s, where I'll have women go, I don't understand what's going on. I feel like I got squishy overnight. I'm still training. I'm still doing proper nutrition, but I'm just not adapting. What's going on? And unfortunately, most women's answer to that is going back to the calories in, calories out. So they train more, eat less, and it gets into this vicious cycle. But what's happening is you're having a changeover in the ratio of estrogen and progesterone. So through our reproductive years, we have a pretty good, steady ratio of these hormones, even though they fluctuate across the menstrual cycle. But when we get to perimenopause, we'll have more anovulatory cycles. So we'll have more times of estrogen dominance. We might have a time where we have progesterone that's released, but we don't have that estrogen surge that comes up with progesterone so then we have a period of progesterone dominance. So we have all these different switches of these ratios of hormones, and they're more than just reproductive hormones. They affect every system of the body. So when we start seeing things like not being able to put on lean mass and we're putting on more body fat, that's because estrogen isn't signaling um, protein synthesis it's also very uh, uh, necessary for the fast contractile protein and myosin, progesterone counters, um, estrogen. It also is responsible for um, blood glucose control. So we start seeing all these little shifts, right? And people don't really identify it. They just are like, oh, maybe I should change to one of these trendy diets, but it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with these hormones are changing. So we have to look at, take a hard look at our nutrition and our training and try to do training with a nutrition match to support the body, how these hormones used to support our body. So this is where we start looking at more polarized training, where you're doing high intensity, like the sprint interval or the high intensity interval training and the very, very low embarrassingly stuff, like really like aqua joggers are passing you while you're trying to swim because you're in a recovery mode. Right. And it's because we spend so much time in that moderate intensity zone, in that gray zone, where it's too hard to be easy and it's too easy to be hard. So that's where we get a lot of that cortisol production. And this is where we start to see this misstep where we don't have estradiol and testosterone to kind of counter the cortisol. So we start getting more anxious. We get depression. We get mood swings. We're unhappy with the way
0: our body composition is changing. So we need to really polarize. I'm like, I'm loving this. This is so interesting because that's so it. I guess I'm like having like this, my mind is just blown right now because we typically don't see anyone as they age doing really high intensity stuff. They're like low yeah. oh, the less intensity is safer, but yet, and I say that in air quotes for everyone, um, listen. Yeah. But really, it's what's safer is to push harder, to get that heart up, to put some stress on the body. Right. Because we see all these
1: epigenetic changes that happen with that high intensity. So I like I'm telling people do sit training where you're going in and you're doing a 30 minute session, but you're having of that 15 minutes of it is alternating 20 seconds on a minute off. So when you're doing that 20 seconds, it's full gas. It's a rating perceived exertion of nine to 10. And then recovery is down around two. So it's really, really polarized. A little bit of warm up and cool down, which is counter to the recommendations of 150 minutes of moderate intensity, right? Right. But that (laughs) moderate intensity, it doesn't work. It does not work for perimenopausal women. It doesn't work for menopausal women either. And I'm also saying, let's do plyometrics because plyometrics, we lose that explosiveness and that responsiveness when estrogen starts to die off. Right. So we need to have that neuromuscular stimulus to keep that ability to be able to run away or right. you know, keep that power. And it's also high intensity. And when we do that, like I said, we get epigenetic changes within the muscle. So we have better blood glucose control without insulin, without estrogen. Right. So there's all these things when we look at what are our public burden diseases, of cardiovascular risk factor, insulin resistance, the serial adiposity, Right. All those things come with not really paying attention of what we can do from an external stress to counter that. So right. it's a, that polarized training changes blood vessel compliance. So your risk factor for cardiovascular disease goes down, changes um, the GLUT4 and the way that your body pulls sugar into the muscle and the liver without insulin. It stimulates power and lean mass development jumping also is great for bone density. We know that running doesn't do it. We need multi-directional stress for bone density. And the other thing to really realize is that when we look at the body composition changes associated with menopause, they actually occur four to five years before you actually hit that one point in time where you don't have periods. So we need to change up when we start feeling a little bit weird and we're like our usual training isn't working for us. So in our mid to mid
0: forties at the latest and start changing it up. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that's, those are good habits to start implementing into your training kind of anyway. Like there's so much benefit to that high intensity, like really like neuromuscular kind of challenging movements. We know that there's athletic benefit, but now there's, there's even more aging benefit and hormonal benefit. And I think that's the really interesting part. Cause you're right. We just see typically in the medical community, um, just like some moderate exercise, as long as you're moving a little bit, but Mm -hmm. that walk may be good for your mental health and good for your just overall health daily habits, but that's not going to be enough to create body composition changes. Exactly. And lifting heavy is the other thing, not the
1: eight to 12 reps. A lot of women don't lift heavy enough and we want to get into that low rep, higher weight aspect or mm-hmm. neuromuscular stimulus so we are getting the signal that we need lean mass and we need to preserve it and building strength and women are afraid of getting bulky you don't get bulky like unless you're really really focused and you have a higher level of testosterone it's really hard to get bulky right so if it's implementing some heavy lifting and that's heavy relative to who you are and what you have been doing right. and those are like the three big things polarized training plyometrics heavy lifting and forget about that long, slow stuff. Our bodies are already primed for that. That's why we see so many women when they hit perimenopause, menopause, gravitate to ultra racing, ultra endurance stuff, because their bodies are really, really good at going long and slow because we are really good fat burners
0: by birth. Right. So it's like, that's not going to help us. You need to polarize. Right. And it's so interesting. So then once somebody, maybe they're starting to have periods that are a little all over the place, perhaps when they're in that perimenopausal stage, would you still suggest doing the heavier and more intense training on what would be that front half of their cycle? Or would you suggest kind of having that high intensity throughout the entire month?
1: If you are normally cycling, then yeah, you can stick to that Higher intensity in the beginning part of the month, as long as you aren't doing long, slow stuff in between. Right. So it's all about dialing down volume, upping the intensity. Right. When you start getting closer and closer to really irregular periods where it might be uh, 40 days and then it's a 60 day and then all of a sudden it's a 21 day. So it's all over the show. Right. This is when we change it up and go two weeks on, one week off, two weeks of focused, high intensity, heavy lifting, one week of mobility, functionality, recovery. Hmm. If you want to do a day or two of long hike or something like that, that's when you put it in. Okay. Um, because recovery starts to change and we don't want to like push out too much. And we also don't want to have too long of a recovery either to lose some of the benefits that
0: we've been doing. Right. All right, so it really is just paying attention to what your body's doing, what your period is telling you, because our periods do give us so much information if we're willing to pay attention to how we're feeling throughout that cycle. Um, I think just having those tools of knowing when to push, when to step back a little bit is so helpful, regardless of where you're at in your lifetime of athleticism. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh! So tell us where can we learn more? You have your book, you have your online courses. Tell us a little bit about those.
1: Yeah, so Roar came out in 2016, actually, (laughs) and it's now like hitting it big. And um, my husband was always saying, hey, we should put Roar into a class because we both come from university teaching backgrounds. So we decided that we would try it out with the Women Are Not Small Men course. So this is the big course where I go through the science of everything. I give um, background on trendy diets, on puberty, on... um, reproductive health from natural cycling, OC use, perimenopause, menopause on the broader brushstrokes of the female athlete's life. And it's not specific to athlete because I always say if you exercise on purpose, you're an athlete. Amen. And then we have case studies. So it's really kind of in depth to really learn all this. And then from that course on the menopause section, people are like, where can I get more information? I want to know more about perimenopause. And menopause is like, let's do a course. So we have a a shorter course on peri and postmenopause and all the things, talks about the science, the history, menopause hormone therapy, alternatives to it, the kinds of training you should be doing, how you should be eating, case studies, all that kind of stuff. And then that led into our second book that comes out in May, which is called Next Level. And it's all in the perimenopause to postmenopause state, like what to do. So it's kind of like the second chapter of um so the website has like all the courses the books that kind of stuff um has a place to sign up for our micro learning units which are deep dives into specific topics like iron or collagen protein supplementation training with your menstrual cycle um and then updates on other stuff that i'm doing from research and that kind of stuff and then you can follow me on social as well to get
0: smaller hits of what i'm doing right oh my gosh I so appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you for paving the way for so many of us coaches out there that are wanting to support female athletes across the span of their lifetime and for tackling um, all things perimenopause and menopause, because I know that's, that's on the horizon for so many people that are now on Instagram and taking in this information wanting to learn more. And I'm just grateful for the work that you're doing. Oh, thanks.
1: And I'm thankful for you for talking about it and putting it out. Right, because I could just still sit in my little silo talking about it. But if we all don't talk about it, then it goes nowhere. So Oh no.
0: I love finding like-minded and hearted uh, colleagues out there, and I'm really grateful that we got to connect. So thank you so yeah. much for coming on the podcast. We will link all of Stacy's information in the show notes. Talk to you all next time. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you are a postpartum athlete and you're really trying to figure out what next, what does my return to fitness? look like? What do I do about my core, my pelvic floor? How do I get back into the movements I want to do in a way that I feel really confident about? I have you covered because I know exactly what it's like to be where you are as a coach, as an athlete, and as a mom. So I want you to download six exercises for the first six weeks postpartum. It's a free resource and it just goes over everything that I think is really important to take into consideration during those early weeks postpartum. Now, if you're ready to begin more of an exercise program, say you've been cleared by your doctor or midwife, I have a eight week postpartum athlete training program, which acts as the perfect entry back into fitness, into the gym, into the kind of movement that you wanna do where it's still respecting the changes your body has gone through and how your baby was delivered but it really helps connect your rehab into the kind of fitness that you want to do in a way that's relatable and fun and exactly what your body needs right now on behalf of your long-term function and performance.